You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hi, NSLT listeners. This is your producer speaking. Today, we're bringing you an early release. This is part two of our interview featuring former CIA official Rob Dannenberg about the psychology and intentions of Russian President Vladimir Putin. We'll also be releasing an episode this coming Thursday, the 17th, so please stay tuned. Here's Elisa. I have to say there was a bit of theater, in my opinion, that occurred last week. Televised meeting between Putin and a number of people, but including his own intelligence chief who appeared to differ with him. What did you make of that? Was it simply a bit of theater? He had to have had a tactical reason for allowing that to be public. What are your thoughts? First of all, that's a, that's a very astute observation. And it was an extraordinary meeting. I mean, you've got Sergei Naryshkin, the head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, a longtime friend of Putin's, by the way, and a very powerful man in the structure of the Sloviki or the tough guys that are closest to Putin. And Putin turned him into a bumbling idiot. Gavrita Priyama, Gavrita Priyama, speak plainly, speak plainly. Naryshkin, whom I've, I've met, is a, he's a tough guy. He's a tough, powerful, confident man the head of Russia's version of the CIA. And Putin turned him into a bumbling idiot over the question of the legitimacy of the special military operation. I think the key point of your question there, Alyssa, is why did Putin humiliate one of his closest friends and his inner circle in that fashion publicly? Well, he did it clearly to send a message to all the other tough guys, all the other Soloviki all the oligarchs and anyone who might be considering offering a dissenting point of view about the need for and the need to continue to support the special military operation. There's no question about that. So if you're another guy, if you're Shoigu, the minister of defense, or you pick your member of that structure, you're Patrushev, the head of the Russian National Security Council, you're seeing Navarishkin get humiliated. And the clear message to you is, I got to toe the line. The answer is, Yes, Mr. President, whatever you need, yes, we will execute it immediately. That's the message. Okay. Well, I mean, it was it was actually broadcast, so it was an effort to humiliate unquestionably then. I want to talk about a couple things, which is what is his end game? What is his next target? Well, I think that's a that's an evolving question. Putin has suggested in the past couple of days that he would cease the special military operation immediately if the Ukraine were to accept some conditions, neutrality, non-membership in NATO, recognition of Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics as independent states, recognizing the uh, Russian annexation of Crimea. And Putin has suggested those would be good enough for him. I think that's theater. I think Putin it would not be content with leaving a rump Ukrainian state that would immediately be offered membership in the European Union and probably put on a path towards membership of NATO. It's unthinkable for Putin to allow that. Plus, I would, I would suggest to you, not that he seems inclined to accept Putin's conditions, but uh, Volodymyr Zelensky would lose his job immediately and his credibility. And the Ukrainians would continue to fight with a new president. So whatever deal Putin thinks he can get is just 
I, I, I look, you know, markets jumped this afternoon. I think everybody's out there is look is grasping onto straws that there might be some negotiated cessation of hostilities and a return to the status quo ante. I, I just don't, I just don't see it. So then, then the question, you know, what's next? I would suggest that whatever, you know, you could go, you could go back to some of the, to some of the old maps of Imperial Russia that. Putin seems to have dug up from the Kremlin archives and you can say, okay, well, where are the borders that Putin wants to restore? But I I think there's a couple of things that he has as near-term objectives. One is the complete conquest and occupation of the Ukraine. Secondly, I, I put Moldova up on the list, pretty high on the list, because as you might know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's been a Another one of Putin's little puppet states called Transnistria, a perfectly miserable place on the planet if you've ever had the misfortune to land there. But there's a there's Russian military station there and it has been since 1989, if not before. And Putin would love to link up with that little isolated state. And it, why, if you're in Transnistria, why not just keep going and take Moldova and thereby end whatever prospect Moldova might have had for a membership in the EU or potential membership in NATO. I think that's a lot easier problem for Putin to achieve militarily than going against a NATO state. Uh, I think if Putin had any doubts about the willingness of NATO to invoke and respect Article 5 of the NATO Charter, I think those are likely gone. I mean, assuming, again, that that Putin is having anyone speak to him, frankly or honestly, uh, which I'm skeptical of, as you might have gathered already from uh, my remarks on this podcast. But if he were, he would recognize that, A, my military reform, which I, I would point out, not many people seem to have recognized this, but the Russian minister of defense, the guy that Putin has put in charge of reforming Russia's military, he's not a professional soldier. You know, he's got sort of a political background, was ministry, minister of emergency preparedness or some nonsense, but he's not a soldier. And so whatever sweet nothings he was whispering in Putin's ears about the capability of this modernized, reformed Russian military seems to be a bunch of nonsense. If you were planning on rolling through Ukraine and then rolling into Poland or rolling into the Baltic states, I think you got to rethink that. Yeah. Okay. So I want to push back on one concept, which is I want to start from accepting you have said previously to us that he sees a zero sum gain. It's cultural matter. He's indoctrinated to believe that way. He only responds to power, might makes right, you know, Alibaba, whatever. Can he be undone, deterred, crippled, or otherwise just brought offline by meaningful sanctions? So that's the first part of my question. Let me give you a chance to answer that before I roll into the second one. Well, you're absolutely right, Alyssa, about Putin's mindset. I mean, he's a product of KGB training, as I think I might have said on my previous podcast with you guys. He looks at the world as a zero-sum game. Whatever hurts the the West or his opponents must, by definition, be good for Russia. Another tenet of KGB training is the ends justify the means. So if he has to turn Kiev or Kharkiv into rubble, as he did with Grozny in 1997, or Aleppo in Syria more recently. But in the case of Grozny, you know, he defeated the, in his view, Chechen terrorists, Islamic extremists, et cetera. In the case of Aleppo, Bashar Assad is still the president in Syria. So Putin won, at least in his mind. 
for the moment. So if the price to be paid to get a puppet government in the Ukraine is to turn its two biggest cities and many other cities in the Ukraine into rubble, Putin's perfectly willing to pay that price. And if if as a consequence of it, as we have seen, Russia has to face uh, extraordinary sanctions, and in my view, for the first time, meaningful sanctions, particularly now that we've decided, as as the United Kingdom, to no longer purchase Russian hydrocarbon products. Uh, the question is, are these enough to change Putin's mind? And I would go back to a comment that was made to me by a very senior retired Russian KGB officer who was Putin's deputy when Putin was the director of the Russian Internal Security Service. And this was in a conversation that we had right after the March 2014 annexation of Crimea. And this general said to me, you know, Mr. Dannenberg, if you think that you're going to intimidate our president by sanctioning him, I would suggest you rethink that. You know, of course, that his family comes from, his people come from St. Petersburg. They were starved by the Nazis for three years under the siege of Leningrad in the Second World War. You're not going to intimidate our president by sanctions. And up to this point, we haven't. And if you look at Putin's remarks in the last 24, 48 hours, he doesn't seem to be intimidated at all. And I think we consistently (sighs) underestimate the capability of the Russian people to endure hardship. I mean, it's not perhaps that's true. But but if he, you know, if he is unpopular with the population under 40, as has been reported, uh, whether they're articulating that or not, then I would like to believe that there may be a chance that they're not willing to take that on, take on his fight. Ultimately, if it's something that at the end of the day, they think it's nonsense because they've had access to uh, outside media and they have some doubts. But um, I want to go back for a second. Last time we talked, I, we started to talk about oligarchs. And I think this these people are not well understood. Since we had you on, we had the privilege of having uh, Nick Burgess from the Financial Times who wrote the book Kleptocracy, and he more particularly set forth sort of what happened as the Soviet Union collapsed, his area of expertise being finance. But I, I want to talk to you for a second. Now, these guys, just for our listeners, we're going to hyperlink an opinion before the district court in the District of Columbia involving one of these people, Mikhail Friedman, who admitted in court and in depositions that, you know, he was, you had to pay the government, you had to pay Putin, you know, that was part of it. He talked about his relationship with Putin historically, how he bailed him out of a few situations, how basically every asset that Russia had was carved up and given to a a few people who had the buying power, presumably because they had black market funds and, and other things. These oligarchs, you've pointed out, a lot of them have said, you know, even even Friedman has said this shouldn't be happening. But of course, he's Ukrainian by birth, if I'm not mistaken. You've mentioned that he's actually one of these guys. He's, you know, more than one of them. I think he's poisoned or just ruined them in some way. I'd like to get this is something that I think is so important right now. And I feel like you've got such great expertise here. What can they do? What do you see happening here? And let me say, as recently as yesterday, I think the greatest prediction among some business leaders here in the United States is that he will just reacquire all those assets and make them owned by the state. What do you think will happen here? What, what about these people? Who are they? What do you see their role can be here in stemming any of this? Well, one hopes that the oligarchs are in a position to mobilize support either in their own ranks or more broadly with the Russian public to try to influence the regime or ultimately remove Putin from power. I'm not optimistic that they have that 
type of power or influence, but clearly one of the objectives of the recent sanctions regimen directed at these oligarchs is to weaken the real or perceived circle of support around Putin from these guys. And if you, you know, judging by Fridman's comments, among others, there are now some public expressions of dissatisfaction with the uh, special military operations coming from special military operations, sorry, singular, coming out of the oligarch community. You know, perhaps I'm reflecting a little bit of cynicism here, but I think it might be in part be by those oligarchs looking at a, you know, a potential situation where Putin's government collapses and the oligarchs are sanctioned by the West and that thereby limiting their escape options in the event they want to get out or they want to survive in a post-Putin world. But, you know, I, I don't rule out the idea that some of these guys may have the type of influence or whether it's hiring personal militias like Prigozhin and his Wagner group, they might serve as elements in an effort at regime change. I mean, you say, Rob, that's crazy. You're talking, you're talking about another coup d'etat in Russia. What I point out to you since the collapse of the Soviet Union, there have been two coup attempts in Russia, 1991 and 1993. So it's not entirely without precedent. And I would hope that part of the strategy for sanctions is to empower those who may have the capability to either economically, politically, or in the sense of supporting uh, an insurrection, give them the motivation to, to so do. I would point out also that part of the community that's not as affected by sanctions are is that Slovaki group, the uh, Patrashevs and Choigus and others. They don't have assets in the West. Their kids don't go to school in the West. They don't have yachts and all that sort of stuff. So they're less subject to sanction. Uh, they're all in. But these other these other guys, Deripaska, you know, Roman Abramovich, I mean, the list is long, Patan and Usmanov, you know, one hopes that over the course of time, they might put their heads together and say, we got to do something, guys. We're powerful people. Let's let's do something. Well, that would be refreshing. I, I don't know what the latest is on Abramovich, but it would be interesting to see what he's saying today, because it did appear to shift um, over the last few days. We'll hyperlink some of those comments for our listeners. Many Russians who are part of the Russian diaspora here have pointed out worse and more autocratic possible replacements for Putin. And Rob, this concerns a lot of us. And, you know, they've named a number of people. If he were to go or die, are there devils we don't know waiting to step in his stead? Well, you know, that's a highly speculative question at this point, because there is no identified successor those with their hands on the instruments of power in the Russian Federation at the moment think like Putin and are not inclined to be recognized or to be accommodating towards the West in any respect. You know, some have suggested that you could go back to Dmitry Medvedev, but I, I think Medvedev's too corrupt. And I think the Nav team Navalny has done a great job of exposing his corruption. So there, there is no clearly identified successor. One would hope that a circle of Russian senior military leaders, for example, might come together and say, look, it, we, we feel that there's a real risk here of the world coming to mutual assured destruction. We're acting on behalf of the Russian people. We're going to take, you know, how often do you hear 
military coup d'etat leaders say this, we're going to, we're just going to temporarily hold power, then we're going to have elections. Yeah, well, it doesn't usually turn out that way. But one, one hopes that there's a group, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I do, as a product of my training, feel I'm pretty good at reading a room and reading people's expressions. And if you looked at that press conference where Putin gave the instruction to his minister of defense, Shoigu, and the chief of his general staff, Garasimov, gave the instruction to increase the alert capabilities of Russia's nuclear deterrent forces. It looked like, I mean, from 50 feet away, right at the table. <laughs> but both those guys looked like they ate a hairball. They didn't. They look, absolutely look like they ate a hairball. I, they, I think all of us saw it. It was shocking. They, they were highly uneasy. And they didn't look like they had any forewarning of what that meeting was going to be about. You know, they just sort of looked like, oh my God. And there are some reports out there today, Elisa, that Garasimov lost a son in Ukraine, who's also a Russian general, by the way. Uh, these are unconfirmed reports, but it's sort of circulating out there right now. If there's any truth to it, that'd be a big deal. And one wonders, I mean, Garasimov speaks with Millie often enough. You wonder whether at some point General Milley might be given the instruction to speak to Garasimov and say, General, we're at an inflection point in history here. One potential direction here is mutual assured destruction. You're a military man. You understand that. Another one is we encourage you to do something about your political leadership. In return for that, we're willing to give you certain, we're sort of respect Russia's security interests in a way that we haven't been able to respect in the past. I mean, I, look at this is complete speculation. I have no idea if Millie has been instructor or would be even inclined to have such a conversation, but I want to hope so because the only way this we're going to get out of this situation is with Putin off the table. There's no negotiating with this guy at any point. If you're under any illusion about that, I would suggest you to rethink it. I mean, he's, he he's was, taking everything on this. Right. He was not a person you could negotiate with before this, and now he's COVID crazy. So one last question for you, which is, how do you see this thing ending? You've, you've raised a couple of scenarios here. Is there anything you want to add to that? I, I think you can't rule out. I mean, it's way early. We're two weeks into this thing. But the Ukrainians are doing a darn good job. And they might defeat Russia militarily. I mean, it's, it's not beyond the realm of, I mean, two weeks ago, you just said, oh, Rob, this is complete nonsense. You're, you're loonier than Putin. But you, you look at what's going on now. You know, Russia's, according to all reports, Russia's massing for another offensive against Kiev in the next uh, 96 hours. You know, if that stalls again and the U Ukrainians are, are announcing that they've launched two counterattacks near Mariupol in the past week, I mean, and, and Western supplies keep pouring in. The Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs announced today that it's turning over all its big 29s to the United States government to be backfilled by more modern, or the term is equivalently combat-capable aircraft, thereby putting potentially the Polish MiG-29 fleet at the disposal of the Ukrainians. I mean, the situation could change on, on the ground in Ukraine. The Russians might be beaten. And, and let's add to that, you know, the MiGs are important because that's exactly what Volodymyr Zelensky has asked for because... His people know how to operate a Russian aircraft. They don't yep. know how to operate a U.S. aircraft. Okay, well, so that's a possibility. I will say this. Volodymyr Zelensky gives uh, new meaning to the term that Richard Cohen coined in his book, Tough Jews. I have to say he's an impressive guy. I'm dazzled. Um, but I'm also dazzled by you, and I'm really glad you came back. 
And I want to tell everybody that Rob also writes for the Cypher Brief. This is an online publication. We're going to hyperlink several of his pieces in the notes to this cast. I would encourage you to take a look at them. He's informed. He's measured. He's thoughtful. And as you're trying to navigate this situation, listening to voices like Rob make a lot of sense. And uh, that's it. So I'm really glad you came back. Thanks a lot for having me, Elisa. It was really fun. Sorry if I get too passionate about this stuff, but... Not as passionate as Putin. And quite frankly, Rob, you look a lot healthier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Elisa. All right. All right. All right. right, Our guest tonight has been Rob Dannenberg, who worked for the Central Intelligence Agency for 24 years, where he was the chief of the operations for the Counterterrorism Center. He was chief of the Central Eurasia Division, chief of the CIA's Information Operations Center. I could go on and on. This is crazy. He's a recipient of the Distinguished Career and Intelligence Medal, the Donovan Award for Operational Excellence, the George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism, and he's received the Director's Award. So, you know, he's got a lot of junk on the wall behind him as we're, as we're <laughs> taping this. And thank you, everybody, for listening to NSLT. We'll be back next week with more serious content. We're also going to discuss the law of war and whether or not economic sanctions can trigger any sort of kinetic action under international law. Share this episode with your friends. Discuss it over coffee. Subscribe to NSLT. Send us comments and feedback on Twitter at ABAMATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Remember, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep you informed during these fast-moving developments. We will always give you context, history, and law. Don't forget that the lawyers and, of course, Rob, on this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, everyone. Be safe. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.